She sees a book in my hand, but she asks me what I'm doing, simply to emphasize that the problem lies precisely in that. Quickly, she adds that I'm burying myself in a world of illusions and made-up stories and cutting myself off from reality with foreign ideas. She looks at the bookshelves, searching for inspiration, and her eyes fall straight away on a shelf holding a complete set, 18 volumes with similar covers and different titles. She pulls one out and pronounces the name, Dostoevsky, saying it wrongly but making it sound nice, then looks at me, waiting for a response, as though the name alone was an accusation. Uh, a Russian writer, I say. And why do you have to expose yourself to all that misery, she asks, as if grasping with her innate intelligence the nature of his stories and characters. Or perhaps she's concluded that I'm exhausting myself by reading him just because his name is difficult. I tell her that he's a well-known writer, and that there's no intrinsic relationship between the difficulty of his name and the contents, as he wouldn't be any less complicated if his name was Sasha, and it would probably still have been Dostoevsky if he'd grown up to become a peasant or a shoeshine man. She likes these kinds of discussion by nature and goes on at great length, inventing creative arguments. She's also stubborn enough to try and twist anything I say and starts making a quick examination of his books to find something to support her deduction, then reads out the titles one after another. The Idiot? Demons? Humiliated and Insulted? Notes from Underground? The House of the Dead? and looks up at me with a movement that confirms that these titles are enough to bring her to her main point, which is, how can you hope to be happy after all that? That was Marsha Linksquayle reading from The Critical Case of a Man Called Kay, a novel by Aziz Mohammed, translated by Humphrey Davies. I'm Ursula Lindsay. Welcome to the Bullock Podcast. And uh, yes, we're coming thanks, to everyone. <laughs> we're coming to you guys as usual uh, from Amman in my case, and from Rabat in Marsha's, and we're going to be talking about uh, this uh, newly translated Saudi novel. Although I think nowhere in the novel does it actually mention that it's set in Saudi Arabia, but the, the writer is a young Saudi writer. Yes. He, he, I mean, I think it, uh, a careful reader could certainly deduce that it's from um, Saudi Arabia, even without any of those markers. But but yeah, the specificity, specificity of it is in very small places in terms of like home decor and, well, he does work for an oil company, but those exist elsewhere. Right. And the scene that you read is, um, is one of my favorites in the book uh, with which has a number of very strong ones. And the the narrator, who is a young man who's quite steeped in Western literature and also seems to aspire to be a, a writer himself, um, has this funny interaction with his mother, whose attitude to him throughout is sort of one of incomprehension and concern and and reproach over her inability to understand him, I would say. Right. I mean, I love the mother character. She's one of my favorites. Um, although I, I also love the sister character. Maybe, you know, all the um, the bad family members are are fantastic. Um, yeah. I mean, his, his, um, his obsession with certain literature and hating certain literature, like um, he's definitely not a fan of Murakami. 
um, although other Japanese literature he's he's um, he sees himself reflected in. All of the literature that he claims, I think, is all from cultures very different from from his own, and and it's funny because in interviews, Aziz has been pretty clear to say because people have said, "Oh, the influence of Kafka on your work," and to say, "Oh, that's the influence of Kafka on the work of the narrator of this particular novel. This, these are the influences of this writer." Um, he, that person is not himself. Right. So throughout the story, I mean, s- starting with um, the title, there's, and, and then in the story itself, there's quotes from Kafka's novels and letters and uh, mentions of certain parallels. Uh, Kafka was sick with tuberculosis. And this is the story of a young man who has uh, cancer, who has leukemia. And so there is this very explicit reference to Kafka and then to a number of other uh, writers, uh, Thomas Mann. Uh, there's the reference to this novel, The Hunger, which I've never read. Uh, By New Thompson. Oh, it's a great one. You must. And 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 so, I mean, uh, the, the, the sort of references underlying are, are to stories of Obviously, what he shares with them in some regard is this overwhelming alienation, um, and which is something that the narrator suffers from well before he gets ill or he knows that he's ill. Uh, I mean, there's a good first third of the book uh, before he gets his diagnosis where already the atmosphere is like, tense and kind of queasy uh, from the beginning. Uh, Right. Even in his childhood, that time, he he always sort of suffers from illnesses and in that wonderful way that you, he he later ignores. So in the very first opening, it, it is this wonderful thing, like his body is transforming. He has this nosebleed. It's as if he wakes up to me as a giant insect, you know. Um, but even before in these flashbacks to childhood, he he never felt right in his body. He always felt ill somehow. But when he goes to the doctor as a young boy and the doctor is like totally dismissive of him and uh, insists that he's a, you know, and colludes with his father and every, every scene is, is so dense with this kind of tension of his relationship to the world and people not understanding him and the wonderful thing that his father internally says, don't exaggerate, don't exaggerate about literally everything. Don't exaggerate. Yeah, there's a lot of um, very disappointing father figures and bosses and doctors and all, all of whom don't, don't seem to understand him at all, but are very self-satisfied in their authority. Um, so, so yeah, it starts at the, in the home. Um, with this, with this father whose catchphrase is don't exaggerate basically in the face of like any emotion, it seems like, or expression of individuality. Um, and, and, and it's also to a large extent, like a work novel, which is, um, which is, I mean, a a modern genre, like, but, and, and a particularly, I feel like there's been quite a few entries in it 
in American literature recently. Um, and and it, there's there's a lot of it that's set at this unnamed oil company where he works in the IT sector um, and, you know, experiences this mixture of total futility and like the sort of jarring fakeness of it all and of all the people around him and of their desire for success, which he doesn't share uh, in, in Yeah, it's way. wonderful. That part of it really made made me feel like it was set in the United States. The the work, so many parts of the work reminded me of being a cubicle employee and and felt so much like the US and the success narratives um, and the way in which you, you have to, you know, um, the way in which these stories about how you work are are constructed about these completely, you know, inane things that you're doing. Yeah, this sort of low-level psychic violence of the right. of the modern of the modern workplace. Um, it, it it's very well observed. Like I think at one point he has this detail that about how he sits next to the copying machine and he can feel on a, at a regular interval the heat from the pages as they're copied uh, on his face, and um, he he sort of renders the the banter of these like. Uh, young colleagues who all aspire to rise up this this hierarchy um, quite well, um, and I mean he obviously doesn't fit in from the very beginning. Just like he also doesn't seem to fit in with his family. I mean he he there's there's love between him and his mother, um, but a kind of inability to understand each other and there's much less than love with his brother and his sister. I would say there's some love with his brother, but with his, <laughs> with his sister, he is nothing but a grave disappointment. The fight between them at, at the end was terrifying for me. Yeah. I mean, also I think there's some interesting um, analysis of like, the ways in which his relationship with his mother and his sister becomes like terribly distant once he's no longer a child right, um, right. and and how maybe gender and gender roles like really create this huge distance between siblings and and even children and and parents uh, i mean again none of this is made explicit Explicit in any way, uh, or 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 explained in terms of like Saudi culture or anything like that. Uh, but he does, and then also with the nurses and with other young women he meets, it, there. I mean, he has difficulty relating to everyone, but then there may be a particular difficulty relating to women. Um, right. Although I think the handful of people. That he does connect with um, the 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 young woman who is also dying, who he meets sort of by chance in the hospital, who's reading. I can't remember. She's reading something by uh, Susan Sontag, Sontag. I think. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and and illness they as metaphor. I think. Right, right. They connect briefly, and then she dies. And uh, I mean, 
the connections that he makes are so fragile and momentary. I think there is like, you know, these sort of beautiful moments in a mostly sarcastic um, text. And I really, really enjoyed the, um, the, the ironic and sarcastic um, nature of the text. I think it really sort of propels you through reading with delight moments that are, would otherwise horrify you. Yeah, I, I think th- there is humor in it, especially in the first half. Um, and there's there's this tension until he finds out what exactly is wrong that I actually find more interesting than once the character is sort of diagnosed and has to go through all the like stages of treatment. Mm. I, I find that sort of looming disaster feeling that 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 that's over the first half of the book um, propelled me forward as a reader more than the second half where there's still some great observations and, 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 and strong writing, but I I don't know, there was, it it started to feel like not surprisingly, like a little bit of a slog through this kind of uh, um, endless like waiting and right. And getting worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the family insisting that he try harder to, I, I I really enjoyed um, the, (laughs) the the family insist you know is centering themselves as i think people just do when somebody close to them has cancer and like sort of insisting that you try harder to get better damn it right what's wrong with you why aren't you fighting the survivor narrative like we see on you know the fundraisers for cancer survivors right i i mean i yes he he describes very well the the isolation of the experience. I mean, I think as we all, even if we don't know it firsthand, we can imagine like, you know, when you have, (laughs) when you get that close to death, basically to the possibility of death, you're not in the same world as other people and it makes them very uncomfortable and we don't behave very well and we don't know what to do with people like that. because I think it's so, you know, scary for everyone else. Um, so, so upsetting. So there's like, you know, denial and, and like you say, just sort of stupid encouragement. Um, I particularly enjoyed the story, uh, the scene right after he has uh, flown to the Capitol, gotten his diagnosis, and he flies back on an airplane. And it, he he manages to write a like five or six page long scene just about the narrator's discomfort, like physical as well as psychological discomfort at like trying to use the airplane bathroom. Yeah, that was that was wonderful. And you wouldn't think, I mean, it's a pretty mundane experience and we basically have all had it. The like awkwardness of getting up multiple times, not being able to use the bathroom, making the people next to you get up again, feeling like looked at by everybody. Of course, the narrator has this sensibility where he he experiences all this as like more extremely uncomfortable than I think some other people would because he's so sort of at odds with everybody in his own mind already. Uh, And then he finally goes and tries to use the first class bathroom and is told he can't. And then he blurts out, I have cancer. And 
and and it becomes this very funny scene where that's the that's the open sesame that's the magic word and they let him use the bathroom and everybody's kind to him and then he goes on this kind of really funny riff about how he has a superpower he's realized he has a superpower now and he can just tell people he has cancer he can tell people you're giving me cancer if they <laughs> if they if they do something he doesn't like um th- these these kind of moments where it observes uh sort of the ways in which it changes you to enter that no man's land of serious illness. Um, I, I found quite interesting. I also, yeah, liked the humorous moments throughout, like his observations about, well, how could we even know how many people, you know, his, when he suddenly develops as he's going into the MRI machine, this fear of being buried alive, how do we know how many people are buried alive? We don't like dig them right back up afterwards and check. Maybe it's a much higher percentage. Right. Um, so he has this kind of like uh, the the um, the text is always, as as in Humphrey's words, so so torqued that everything has these extreme tense moments, even and especially the banal ones. I also enjoyed the the train ride. So he goes to the capital to get his diagnosis on the train, and then once he has it, he flies back. But also the moments on the train and. And how every human being and every object, every suitcase is so intensely fraught with, you know, this, the anxiety that he places on everything around him. It's almost like before he gets ill, before he has any reason to, he already seems to experience the world the way a person who has some incredibly distancing trauma from the world would. You know, nothing, he doesn't experience anything as just sort of ordinary and everything is kind of painful. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I really found that wonderful flashback of him as a kid getting a lot of nosebleeds and just not ever feeling comfortable in his body and feeling tired or sluggish. He doesn't know what's wrong with him. He wants somebody else to be able to connect to, to explain it to him, to, to sympathize and understand. Um, and then that terrible doctor's appointment where this, you know, ho, ho, macho doctor is kind of slapping him on the back and saying, you're fine. You're a healthy young man. You're not sick. You're not sick. Which I think is a very common modern experience for someone to not understand how sick you are. Yeah, I mean there there are sort of these small moments like with when he's in his in-laws to be house and he's observing the swords on the wall and and saying, you know, the way they're speaking, they're speaking, you know, they're glamorizing um a sort of a transient desert lifestyle as if they'd prefer to be warring over a, a well, a single well versus living in this extreme opulence. So there's like small moments, I think, where you can feel that the novel is very specifically Saudi, but so many other moments speak to, I think, many common uh, contemporary experiences about work, about not being believed at the doctor's office, about the alienation of of medical care, um, about so many things. Well, uh, in that interview that you ran with the translator Humphrey Davies, he mentions that um, the nobody is named, and the country itself isn't named, and like the cities aren't named. So there's a kind of 
And yet there's a lot of specificity to the story. I mean, you visualize the rooms and the people and the spaces, but I, I suppose that's a choice that seems intended to give it a kind of universality. Well, um, I just think about, I mean, because I guess maybe of the way in which Aziz has talked about the work, I think about these all as the, the choices of the, the narrator rather than, of course, I realized that Aziz wrote the book himself and did not like sort of just channel some, the narrator, but, but that, you know, in no, a sort if, of, if anything, <laughs> if anything, frankly, the narrator would mention his sister's name and his city that he lives in. It is very much the author's choice. Yes. Although, so if you were self-consciously writing your, he does self-consciously say, I'm going to call the, um, the, the company where I work this, which I'm naming it after this Japanese a company in a Japanese novel that I really like that I can't remember the name of right now. Um, and if if he is sort of self-consciously modeling himself on the way that Kafka wrote, Kafka, you know, Kafka also often, you know, he calls himself K. Kafka all, often elided the names of of specific cities and didn't say where he was exactly. And I think that also is a sort of an alienation. It alienates both the narrator from his own story and then it alienates us somewhat as or at least it like sort of wrong foots us slightly like um doesn't tell us exactly where we are so it's more the habit of mind of this particular kind of person who is in a way processing everything that's happening to him and writing it as he mentions i mean the book is the book is 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 a simple timeline of like week you know, one through, I can't remember how many of his illness. And it's meant to be- 40, it's 40 weeks, just like pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) I think at one point he says, it's like being pregnant. Like Mm. you get that level of attention. Um, And so he's, he's, yeah. And so he's, and he's writing it and he's writing it in this self-conscious sort of style that refers to this literature that has sort of shaped his consciousness. Yeah. 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 I, I, <laughs> once I saw that it was 40 weeks, I sometimes think of it as the what to expect when you're expecting from leuke- uh, for having <laughs> leukemia, which is well, extremely grim and in terrible tastes and forget that I said that. Well, and he gives birth to the book in the end. I mean, right. that's the, he that's does. what's just it. It's, it's his uh, baby. I mean, at another point in the book though, when later on, when he's quite ill, he says something about, I can't remember the exact sentence, but basically that literature is useless now. Like it it doesn't help in any way. It's no longer relevant. Right. And there is a moment where he's he's not, he's, well, maybe he's still reading haiku. He's still reading some things, but he's like mostly just sort of playing um, role-playing games or whatever. I don't know, Candy Crush and trying to get up a level. And that's that's his goal. That's all he he can he can do anymore. Yeah, there's a passage much later on that gives I think a good idea of uh, it's it's a sort of good counterpoint to the funny one with his mother. This is a much more serious one about the the treatment and the and the pain. Shall shall I read that one? Yeah, please do. All right. I can scarcely recall one moment during these past weeks when I haven't been suffering from some corrosive pain that undermines my desire to endure. It's a dog that barks in my body, night and day. I try as best I can to sleep, but only rarely does the bark allow me to do so. 
And it's the first thing waiting for me when I wake up, if it wasn't the thing that woke me. The days when I would wake feeling good about my condition are gone. It's a kind of biological gauge whose settings gradually gradually change once you've lived with an illness long enough. Each day you open your eyes, automatically expecting to be in a bad state, even before you began to think and feel. This doesn't mean friendly familiarity, because you will never get used to the disease. You just forget how things were when you weren't sick. By this stage, I have excluded the word cure from my dictionary for good. Even if the cancer were to be destroyed, the chronic side effects caused by the disease and its treatment have erased any hope of my living a safe, natural life. The constantly renewed realization of this truth is unbearable. Sometimes I feel as though I'm discovering that I have the disease for the first time, all over again. The depression mounts along with this feeling, and with it comes more paralysis and inability to act. Even when my body gained more energy and recovered something of its immunity in the third week, I preferred to stay in bed for most of the day, as though pinned to it by a rock on my chest. I raise the cover, I push it aside, I turn onto this side, turn back onto the other. This is all I have the energy to do. It isn't that I'll be more comfortable if I maintain this lack of mobility. It's just that I feel that if I stand up, my heart will fail. When I touch its place on my chest, I feel the congestion. I feel its complete adherence to the skin. I feel the pulse, the pulse, the pulse, each pulse a contraction in my throat. I can no longer distinguish when physical pain becomes psychological or psychological becomes physical. Which wets the other's edge? Everything that affects my body affects my mind, too at the same moment and with the same strength, and vice versa, more or less. Sometimes I look at the drugs set out next to me on the bedside table in their transparent half or quarter full bottles, and I think it's easy and within reach. All you have to do is swallow them, one after another. I think about it, but completely unseriously, as though I were thinking about making a trip abroad, just a distant possibility that I'd like but without being at all set upon taking the decision to do so. Finally, I understand the maxim, if suicide weren't a choice, I'd kill myself. I, I love, there are so many things that I love about that passage, especially, you know, as a human being who's experienced pain and chronic pain and waking up to pain, but also this, the, the, the twinnedness of psychological and physical pain and, and how they're impossible to tell apart, or at least impossible for me to tell apart, and apparently for this character as well. Yeah, it's very well observed. It's very moving. It's funny because he's a very young person, and I, I've seen interviews where he's been, <laughs> been asked, who, who is this based on? Is this based on a real person? What, what is it, what, whose experience is this? And he's very elusive about it, which I think is great. I think he should be. Yeah, I mean, it. you do wonder because it's such a, because it's a, I don't know if it's his first novel, but it's. It is his debut, yes. This is his first novel. He's a young writer and it, 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 you know, it's told in the first person and it's so, it has that ring of so much like real life detail and feeling that of course you, you, you do, you wonder like, what is this based on or, you know, what what compelled him to tell this particular story? I mean, 
there's uh there's there's details that feel not imagined but yeah yeah it feels and it, it's he he says it, he, I, in an interview that i read that in, in a very humble way like well i don't know i talked to one um cancer doctor who said that there are some details that i got wrong so um but it's you know it's not about that it's about it does feel in, intensely real to me um like an intensely lived experience of of pain and and alienation and being so close to death yeah it's a, it's a it's an interesting book and you and and also like i said because the alienation sort of predates the illness you know, he goes into all these questions about at the end, he talks about, and I'm not going to give away the end. God, you know, I yes, definitely, no, please don't. <laughs> I won't. But at, towards the end of the book, he, he goes into these questions of, you know, um, having wanted something dramatic to happen to him, um, like, which kind of, for me, Pearl, is the feeling that you almost have that the disease manifests on a plot level, like something that's already there. Mm. Right, like right, right, that, right. That you know, um, he he sort of can't survive. <laughs> like he can't already um, where he is, how he is, uh, and um, there's this very moving passage where he talks about having thought, like when he, you know, that he wanted something dramatic and almost bad to happen to him because that would give his life meaning and give him material to write about, which I think is a very common also like right, fantasy, right. you know? Um, and, and also like give you a chance to sort of prove who you are, know who you are. Um, and, uh, and he says, but the truth, you know, all he feels is this feeling of self-hatred and shame um, and hopelessness uh, and it ends. The truth is that you do, you do not deserve anything better than what has happened to you. It's like a punch in the stomach. Ow. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Aziz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I also found it. You know, so it made me um, look back at a number of other novels that are told by a protagonist who. The engine of the story is their, their uh, is their cancer, their diagnosis, their their treatment, um, and and how it changes their relationships of with people around them. And I'm uh, going to make what I hope is not a completely banal observation, you know, based on a fairly small number of texts that. In the ones that I read by by men, <laughs> the characters were really. It, the cancer in, intensified their their pre-existing alienation and and cancer was sort of a a vehicle for exploring their intense alienation i think the the sort of signature text of that to me was no road to paradise by hassan daoud which has been translated by marilyn booth and in in this uh, you know he's he's in a mem of a small town in in southern lebanon and when he, you know, he's completely, he doesn't really, he's whatever, I don't know, ninth generation imam of this village. And, you know, cancer brings up all these ways in which he doesn't fit 
with his life and he can sort of barely see the people around him and he's intensely alienated from from the others around him whereas you know um uh Shahla Jaili's sky so close to us and Radwa Ashur's heavier than Radwa which is, of course is a memoir not a novel and Haifa uh, al a woman of this modern age um the women characters sort of um looked more clo- you know sort of um, you know they had to rethink their relationships but it was also very intensely about how those relationships changed um while they were um f- whatever fighting cancer mm. we'll we'll put all those titles in the show notes i haven't read any of those books i don't think um uh they're all most of them are pretty recent um uh, a sky so close to us also like a critical case of a man called k i think was shortlisted for the international prize for arabic fiction um and it also uses maybe uses is the wrong word but cancer is sort of i don't know it metaphorical or she so she's suffering cancer while she's in amman and her family's in raqqa in in syria and mm. so it it's those sort of two disasters the personal disaster and then the the shared communal disaster and how do they sort of reflect and 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 speak to or don't speak to each other it's interesting i mean i think the observation about it illness being experienced differently by men and women is interesting and anecdotally <laughs> quite true to me um uh and right, i'm not writing a phd thesis on this i just kind of right back at a few books right but and also what i'm interested in is this idea that like we can't help but try to turn illness i mean especially people who who write but all of us like we have to tell a story about it Right. Like yes. I mean, yes. we we have to tell stories about everything, but this in particular, because of because it's so dramatic, we we feel the need to tell a story about it. Well, I mean, personally, I I, I mean, of course, you can always make a story about everything. That's how you make meaning out of your life. But like, there is no story to illness. Probably, it is in fact, I think, a fact that wipes away story. Right. Yeah. So much of um, Critical Case of K, I think, is him fighting against the ways in which people narrativize his his cancer, right? Like turning, trying to turn it into a survival, a, you know, triumphant survivor story, um, which is one of the, you know, things I most sort of deeply hate about narratives about serious disease and, and, and cancer. Like she fought right. against it and she fought so hard, she beat it back, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, as no, if people who died didn't, f- whatever, weren't as worthy or didn't work as hard. They, they didn't right. stay up late and memorize new vocabulary words or whatever. Right. Although you can see why those kind of stories are so um, hard to resist, because again, right. they well, imply they that there agency. is <laughs> right. They imply that there is a, a correct way and a successful way of of dealing with it with with disease, uh, a way of winning. Um, even though like he says, there is no cure, there is no real recovery. I mean, when you've had certain serious diseases, 
It's also funny to be talking about this after the year that we've had when I feel like we've all Mm. imagined being really seriously ill or people we love being really seriously ill so many times. Yeah, where we're, yes, where serious illness is sort of front and center, sort of in the, um, I don't know, even in the international imaginary. And there is one um, point in the novel where coronavirus is mentioned and Humphrey sort of tweaked me on this because this was, even though um, somebody else conducted the interview, this was my question to Humphrey in the interview, which was, why do you, what do you, why do you stick coronavirus in there, dude? This novel was, you know, published whatever, before pre-corona. He's like, well, actually MERS, as you remember, was a coronavirus. Right. Um, I mean, I thought it worked perfectly well. I, it didn't jar at all. It's, I didn't even, I wouldn't have probably noticed it if you hadn't <laughs> mentioned that. And the whole thing of, you know, him having to mask and, 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 and he's having to mask to protect himself because of his low immunity. And that just kind of resonates with, with everything that we've seen in the last year. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that that was very my particularity. I was like, wait a minute, what is coronavirus doing in this novel? Why has coronavirus invited every part of my life? Right. I mean, the other thing that struck me, I guess, is the degree to which all the literary references of the narrator are like international. I mean, mostly Western, but also Japanese. Um, uh, like, you know, his experience in the office could be anywhere and his literary references, there's there's nothing like particularly Saudi. In fact, quite the opposite. There, there isn't a, a trace of um, Saudi literature in it as a progenitor of his sensibility. Right. And I think that is one of the things that really keeps him so separate and alien. He doesn't have roots, you know, he doesn't, um, he doesn't have it's it's one of the things that disconnects him from the world around him. And it's it, it's interesting because I was I, I've said I was reading an interview with Aziz Mohammed like 20 times now, but he talks about he was reading Kazwini, you know, so he's reading sort of um, uh, deeply rooted, you know, classical Arabic literature. So, uh, you know, I think this character, it's you know, it's I don't think you can read into it that. Aziz Muhammad only cares about foreign literature, but that this, you know, that it creates this sort of unrootedness, um, this this deep alienation from from the world around him. Right, that it's another symptom of his difference, kind of. I mean, although presumably there's tons of young Saudis who read all this literature. Like, it's not so, uh, I mean, as we know, like, it's a very online generation, a very Anglophone generation. I mean, so, so this experience of having cultural references that are far and wide and from outside of your country must be a quite common one, I'm, I, would, I would presume. Sure. And he does find one, one. Is there, I mean, so there's the, the young woman in the hospital who's reading Susan Sontag. I'm struggling to, so his family, they're not made up of Readers, I think it's more the can... difference between being a reader at all and a non-reader, right? Like that's almost yes, the maybe. bigger divide yes, yes, or, yes. or or an, an overlapping divide. Like you don't get the impression that the other people at work, the young cadres, 
Are you like, kidding me? I think they do read self-help literature. Right. I definitely think they read business success stories. But they're not reading Dostoevsky. I mean, it's about the no. type of thing you're reading. Yeah, no, they're right. they're definitely re- read. I guess, okay, my definition of reader <laughs> was already personally biased and basically like a reader of literature and poetry of a particular type is what I meant. Um, yeah, no, the, the, they, I'm sure they, I'm sure they read Right. I think something. there was like, I, I I feel like, you know, there's this really popular Saudi book, uh, self-help book, like I am happy or I will be ha-, something like this. Anyway, I, I imagine those dudes reading that kind of, you know, how to succeed at business, the kind of whatever Dale Carnegie for the 21st century, right? whatever that is. Right. You know, I've only ever been to Saudi Arabia once. It was a really long time ago. And I went to, but I went to a book fair in Riyadh. I think it was like kind of one, I'm sure they have more than one, but it was, it was, you the, know. There's just one big one. The, I mean, there's a huge Riyadh book fair and then there's a big Jeddah book fair. I think that's what it was. I was covering education, so I was sort of more interested in universities, unless it was like a really big educational book fair. Um but it had, you know, that sort of pavilion and and lots of young folks circulating and and uh, um, but of course, you know, you can't know a place at all from one like two week visit, and that place in particular is very different, and I'm sure even different now from it was what it was ten years ago, like probably really significantly different. Um, right. Well, it, it's it's interesting because. I haven't seen any reviews of this book yet other than mine in in English. Leading um, the way. <laughs> but but I I'm just I'm wondering to so the 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 Saudi, you know, Saudi's a huge country like with an enormous population much like Egypt, right? And there are many books that are published there. And I'm not suggesting that you know, people need to read all of them, the self-help one that I mentioned doesn't need to be translated, but, but that the kinds of books, um, Saudi books that are generally translated and marketed have been sort of much more like specifically like, you know, <laughs> get to know Saudi culture, what, what's go, what's really going on behind the X, Y, Z. And well, I just the- hope that people pay, you know, whatever, grapple with this book for what it is. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, the really, you know, when I was reading this, because often when we're reading a, a, you know, when we're reading a book for the podcast, it's from a particular country. And one of the ways that you sort of think about it and situate it a little bit is you start to think about who else do I know who's written in this time period or from this country. And I know so, I've read so little Saudi literature, actually. I mean, other than uh, Abdurrahman Munif, who we've talked about on, on a previous episode, and I think I like dipped into Girls of Riyadh, which was the big hit Saudi novel like over a decade ago, I think. Mm, More like two decades ago. My goodness. No, it can't be that long ago. Please don't tell me it was that. (laughs) Let's let's, maybe. I mean, maybe. um, That I I really have have read so little. And, uh, you know, and, and, and then I was sort of looking up titles and. I saw that there are a few books that have won the International Prize for Arabic Fiction. And there was another, I mean, Girls of Riyadh has this sort of 
you know, inside the lives of Saudi women hook. Um, and, uh, which is a genre also like the sort of, you know, girlfriends and their romantic lives and, and what they're up against is, is, is a, is a Western genre too. And I haven't, like I said, I can barely remember it. So, um, I think there are three uh, books that have won the international prize for Arabic fiction that by Saudi writers, which is quite a lot. So there's, Abdu Khal's um, Throwing Sparks. There, Raja Alam was the co-winner for Dove's Necklace, which is a book I, I really admire a lot. Um, and I think, it, yeah, okay, so she writes very specifically um, about Saudi Arabia, about Mecca in particular. And I don't, I, I don't know why her books haven't gotten a more wide reading. And then there's Mohammed Hassan Alwan, who wrote a historical novel about Ibn Arabi. Um, so that's, you know, that's quite a large percentage of a prize that's only been around for, uh, I don't know, 15 less than years. Right. Yeah. And um, I haven't, I haven't read any of those books. I don't know why. Uh, I mean, you know, what one reads is, is, is sort of quite personal and, and arbitrary. I, I mean, I haven't, maybe it's because I don't know that many Saudi writers. I don't know that many Saudi people on social media. So like, it, they haven't been recommended to me by anybody. Um, mm. Like nobody's really made the case to me that I should read these particular books. Yeah, that's funny to what extent it, it, it reminds, like I was trying to think of why, why did I start reading Ashraf Aghi, who's a Saudi writer? Because Robin Mosher and uh, Norman both recommended him to me and I, I trusted them. Um, and I like his work a lot. Um, and has uh, he been translated into English? No, no. Um, you know, he's got it like this great uh, historical vampire novel. I even tried to pitch it myself, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm a terrible pitcher, so maybe it's just my fault. Um, uh, I, I, th- you know, somebody who's a better pitcher will get his his work placed in translation. I mean, I think not that much has been translated of Saudi literature compared to like other countries in the region, right? right. That would and be I fair think, to say, right? And especially, absolutely. Especially absolutely. with the size of the country in mind, like yes. and, the, and the amount of writing that must go on there. Yes. The patterns of translation are very informed by where translators go to live and study and make personal connections. And so that makes for sense. English language, right? For English language, it has been predominantly Cairo to a lesser extent, Palestine and Lebanon. And, and then after, after that, you know, Morocco, Algeria, um, uh, Syria, other places, and, and far less to, uh, to Saudi Arabia. Right. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, it's no, it's not a, there's no agenda there. It's just that if you don't live in a place it's much less likely that you're going to know its literature or focus on it or, you know, meet writers from there or get to know them. So where, where, where translators live matters. Right. I mean, the, the people I know who became trans, who lived in Saudi Arabia and became translators, um, you know, the ones that come to mind focused on classical literature and classical and, and Arabic poetry which I think, you know, is what, um, what they heard and what they talked about in, in when they met with other people. Although Marilyn Booth translated Girls of Riyadh. Yes, to, famously. And 
um, and then wrote a letter about how her oh, translation was, was. It was acrimonious. Was marred. Yes, it. I it forgot about well. that. I forgot yeah. about that. Huh. Yeah, because I think she she wanted to keep the specificity of the the language um, as it was used in the novel, and she felt they were, f- you know, they sort of sided with the author and flattening it into a sort of standard English. That's, I mean, this this is this issue that comes up in translation again and again, and in writing, and in writing when you're writing for like multiple potential audiences, which I think a lot of writers are these days, is, you know, how much are you intentionally being specific and how much are you intentionally sort of trying to tell a story that is perhaps readable to you know out even even outside of its cultural right geographic it's time context. and place right right and I, th- and I think you can do I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer about like one is right or one is wrong I think it's how you do either thing it's just about the how not the what like you, you you it's it's really about the you know the building of your particular story um and obviously it can be done wrong like you can flatten things on purpose because you're already picturing the translation or you can play up whatever the the immediate stereotype might be also you know with 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 marketing maybe consciously or unconsciously in, in mind but it's a delicate balance um, for 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 a writer because I do think also people want their work to like to be true to a particular time and place, but also to you know appeal to a reader a hundred years from now or half across the world, right? Like that's also a goal, right? Although I think you know it's it's funny because I um, in I saw Ramallah. Um, Murid Barghouti, or maybe it's in I Was Born Here, I Was Born There, I can't remember which one. But he, he talks about, uh, <laughs> in one is his very few the, these days, the kids are, everybody's writing for translation. But I think, the, so I think that some people are sort of self-consciously not, it's like self-consciously saying, I'm writing for an audience in Arabic. Right. I mean, and also that sounds to me a little bit like a, I don't know, that I'm sure that that complaint, like, oh, the kids are writing to be translated, like, you know, there's there's a certain amount of maybe generational incomprehension there or competitiveness or whatever. I mean, you know, I don't the kids know. may I, also I, have yes. a different, more international culture. Like, they just may have different references. Uh, right. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually have not seen this sort of, phenomenon of writing for translation that people sometimes talk about. Um, you know, sometimes I think people foreground, you know, play up or foreground the types of stories that m- might be more successful in translation. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but it, it just doesn't feel does. like a big, it just doesn't feel like. Um, yeah. I mean, I have to say that, for example, the book we've just talked about today feels so how to say like I'm trying to think and none of the words are right like not authentic not harmonious just it, uh, itself it feels like itself right 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 and 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 I think if you look back I mean I know there are there are always issues with framing I think a lot of them have to do with market forces more than 
anything else. Um, but if you look back over the season that we've just had of episodes, there's just so much good stuff out there. There has been for so long, and there's so much good stuff being translated, I think, more and more. Um, and, like, you know, this is, like, we've had a really good run of pretty damn good books um, that, that, we've been, that we've been reading for just for the podcast in the last couple months. I, you know, yeah, I can definitely, keep I'm, up. Very, <laughs> I'm very pleased with my reading year so far. Oh, we'll have a great year's end, although we won't remember anything when we do the roundup. No, yes. I saw somebody who does these little brackets all year long of which books that she likes better, like uh, as a sort of, um, you know, like sporting uh, events are arranged. And even though, you know, it seemed 90% corny to me, it seemed 10% super useful because, you know, by December, of course, I'll have no idea what I thought was brilliant in February. I know. I don't even have the discipline to just like take a picture of the book I'm reading and put it on Twitter. Like I, I don't have any, <laughs> I, I just like pour through, I have no, I've never had that habit of like kind of being systematic about my reading. Um, but uh, maybe this is a good place to stop. We're actually um, on the last episode of our spring season, spring going into summer season. And this, our sixty eighth episode, yes, like we're 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 a lot. I know, um, and uh, we're gonna be rerunning episodes though over the summers. And there's a lot of good ones, and you know we have sixty eight of them to choose from. So there will continue to be episodes over the summer, and we may also do a couple um, surprise uh, episodes, which will be recorded from even more across even bigger distances than Amman to Rabat, I think, this summer. And uh, I also recommend if you haven't listened to some of the previous episodes this spring, um, that there, that pretty much every book we've featured um, is, a, is, is, is really worth um, taking a look at. Yeah, definitely. It's been a great reading year. Yeah. Well, bye for now, Marsha, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.